Hello listeners, this is Paul Gladder with Religion Unplugged. Today we want to talk about cities. We want to talk about New York City in particular and what's going on here amid COVID, protests, rising crime, and other trends. To do that, we invited sociologist Dr. Ann Hendershot for a conversation. Hendershot is a sociologist who's written many books and directed an urban studies program at the University of San Diego, where she was chair of the sociology department. Today, Dr. Hendershot teaches at Franciscan University of Steubenville in, o- in Ohio, and she's teaching again at the King's College, where she's also my colleague. In fact, her course on the city, which is about New York City, kicks off again this fall. And because she's so well-versed in the history and sociology of New York City, we thought she would be a perfect guest to discuss what's going on with New York City right now. We see these headlines about crime rising and um, we, we see New York City uh, become a hub of protests. Earlier this summer, we saw it as a hub of coronavirus infections earlier in the spring. And it seems the rest of the country enjoys reading about all these things. So I would like to, to start by you know, welcoming you and also hearing you describe your overall sense about New York and whether its star is rising or falling right now. Yeah, the idea of a star falling for New York. I read that and I was a little alarmed, the idea of that. But that, that's not the first time I've heard that, that New York star is falling. And I just don't believe that at all. That's impossible to me, completely impossible to happen because New York is always going to be a star. You know, to me, I mean, people talk about Paris being the city of light. To to me, New York is the city of lights. All those buildings and all those lights, even in this dark time that we're going through, that's a brief time and we're coming out of already, um, it's still, light. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald once said that um, that New York has all the iridescence, I think he said the iridescence of the beginning of the world. And I love that quote. And I have my students read that. In fact, they're reading um, Empire City, which is excerpts from lots of writers like E.B. White, um, Jimmy Breslin, F. Scott Fitzgerald, all talking about the city. And to me, that's a very Christian way to look at it, the iridescence of the beginning of time when God said, let there be light. Now, I know God doesn't have this idea of New York the way it is and the way it has been in the past. It's not a perfect city, but it's a light city. And the star could never, I mean, the clouds may come over for a little while. And we've had those clouds before that obscure the star, but it's going to come back. It can't not come back. I mean, we've been through so many worse times than this. And I guess I've lived a very long time. I'm pretty old. And I've seen us go through these cycles. And I'm not worried at all. There's no way New York is going to lose its shine and its light, just like Christians don't lose their light. I mean, we're not allowed to despair. So, I mean, we can't be pessimistic. And I hate these articles that I'm reading. Uh, This one guy wrote in Atlantic um, that New York is done and he moved to Florida. I'm tired of those. I don't want to hear the pest. Christians aren't allowed to despair. That's not what we're about. But we we also can't be Pollyanna about it. We can't say, oh, everything's just fine, because we know it's not. We have a mayor that's kind of a problem. Mm -hmm. And my course 
I mean, the theme of my course is mayors matter. Hmm. And when you have a mayor that's wonderful, you have a wonderful city. When you have a mayor that's struggling, you have a struggling city. Interesting. As a thesis, we'll come back to that. Um, but it's, you know, sometimes I wonder, you know, why is there below the surface um, in America and maybe other countries too, this divide of urban and suburban and rural and sometimes um, animosity between, between the, the two or the three things. Um, uh, and, and why is there such a public fascination when a city would, is struggling, when a city doesn't have good leadership and people seem to want to uh, read about it and pile on and pronounce it dead or the stars fall. <laughs> I know. Why is there that, that, that desire? I mean, is that just a normal desire for finding out the truth of what's going on and maybe no, just having I don't think so. misguided think, analysis or is it deeper than I think that? a lot of people are a little bit in awe of New York. Um, I think they are a little afraid of the idea of New York. I think it takes courage to move to New York. I guess I love New York so much because I've never really lived there full time. Um, I live in Connecticut. I grew up in Connecticut. So New York was like the shining city for me and it always has been. So I never saw the, the tarnish anywhere and I always loved it and I always wanted to live there, but we never did. I think other people kind of look at the city as corrupt and that um, they would never want to live in a place like that. And it's not, you know that, Paul, but it takes courage to go there. I mean, you, I think you came from the Midwest. I'm sure your family were a little worried about you. Our students, I have to give them so much credit that I'm so thrilled they're, they come here. And they're courageous to come here. Not that it's a scary place, because it's certainly not. I was just on subways last week and they were, they were cleaner than ever. I don't know if you've noticed the subways. Good for you, Mayor de Blasio. I'm grateful <laughs> for that. There, you could almost eat on the subway and I never would have thought of doing that in the past. I see people eating their lunch though. Like, Whoa, I don't think so. But the subways are clean. Um, but I think, there's, I think there's a sort of envy of people who live in the city, who have the courage to pick up and move to a scary city, bigger city than anywhere, and I think that's part of the, the love-hate thing that's going on. You know, these people yeah. that are moving away, they're like, oh, I'm done with the city. I don't need the city. We don't need the city. We're moving to Florida. Now, Florida is beautiful, but I wouldn't be, I didn't want to say be caught dead in Florida, <laughs> but I don't want to live in Florida. There's none of that energy that mm -hmm. you get in New York. I get charged, you know, recharged. I can write. I can think I can be creative and I think people don't understand that yeah yeah no I think that's those are good insights and and, and yeah when I reflect on coming to New York right out, right out of college essentially and the comments I remember from people in the Midwest or and even my own experience as a college student every time I came to New York my um, fear or you know perceptions of the place were chipped away and the magic started to capture you know uh, like these writers you write about. When you come as a young person to New York, it is magical. But then, so let's dig into a couple of the current issues. So it's, we have a few layers. There's mayor, mayoral and leadership, which we can come back to. And then, but then this year, um, there's a perception out there that New York is struggling more. And that one, one reason is we saw when the coronavirus hit in March and in April, 
because of the, you know, perhaps the dense population or other factors, New York City was the hub for infections and deaths early on. And, um, it, you know, is there ongoing impact from that? Or do you think on that first point, we're sort of past that now as coronavirus has spread more to the rest of the country and we seem to have yeah, Florida and California and Arizona are the hot spots now. New York is not. Um, and I wish we would reopen our restaurants. That's because that's going to bring yeah. back the city. It's going to bring back jobs and it's going to make the city a whole lot more fun for the rest of us. Um, so that's that's the to me the problem of COVID that's left. Other than, I mean, the horrible losses, we've had some sad losses. I'm sure you know people, I know people. Yeah. The days are over, and once they reopen restaurants and bars, mm-hmm. life will come back. Mm-hmm. Some of the restaurants won't come back, but life will come back. And people come back to work when schools are. Right now, the, the schools aren't operating fully, so the people can't even go back to work. The private schools are, many of them that are allowed to open. Um, but people can't work unless the schools are back. So yeah, there are still some vestiges, economic especially, but in terms of infection worries, I mean, I'm in that sweet spot, I'm old, so I should be worried, but I'm not worried. I wear a mask, it's very safe. Mm-hmm. The infection is not spreading the way it was. If you look right. at hospitalizations, they're, they're negligible. So that's not, that's not the scary part, it's the economic mm. fallout. Urban places in New York in particular, as capitals of you know, both cultural life, but also when you talk about economics, I mean, I think that's also part of that envy you talked about earlier, which is all these skyscrapers full of the, some of the biggest Fortune 500 companies and you know, in journalism and media, fashion and finance. And one sort of, I think, question mark is, is the way we work going to change and will more people work from home and will these companies get rid of their offices. And that's one, I think, economic question that's out there. I have my thoughts on it, but I'm curious, you know, your quick take on, on that. Will uh, New York I think a lot of people like working remotely and I have worked remotely, but I kind of, I mean, you're a news per, newspaper person. You must know that there's a reason there's called a newsroom. Yeah. Because there's a lot going on in that room besides just you t- sitting at your computer. You're talking to other people. And that kind of energy, you can't get that remotely entirely. I mean, I think you can write a column if you're, but if you're working on something, it's helpful to have other people. And I think businesses will realize that people kind of got to be there. New York provides that place for us. I mean, it's, yeah. I don't see us being remote forever. I think people right. are fine for a little while. I mean, it's nice to hit, work with our dogs around us and our sweatpants on, I suppose. But I couldn't imagine being remote forever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, um, right. Well, when, and, and, you know, to that point, uh, the program that you and I both teach in for the sake of the listeners is, I mean, we teach students at King's who are there for four years, but we also teach students who are visiting Kings from 40 different partner schools from all over the country and internationally. And um, I think a lot of these students, as you said, are are full of potential, full of ideas. And uh, we want to train them to be uh, good people, good employees, good at what they do, but also in the future, good leaders. Um, uh, And and I think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about courage. So um, I remember 
the that earlier era, you know, there was a movie like The Warriors that was kind of humorous, <laughs> but also depicted these lawless anarchic New York City street gangs roaming around doing graffiti and getting into fights. And um, we had um, 1975 New York Daily News famous headline, Ford to City, Drop Dead, you know? So, um, and I think that related to budgets in the city, not the federal government not wanting to give to bail out New York City, uh, if I recall. Um, so are we heading to, do you think, so 1970, right now, 2020, are we at a crossroads um, uh, uh, that doesn't really, our students will come no matter what because they're courageous, but is the city at a crossroads to looking into the 1970s or to the 1980s where things started to turn around? Depends on who we elect, I think. It depends on who becomes mayor. And if we have the courage to elect someone who has a vision for this city. See, that graffiti you spoke about, that wasn't just spontaneous graffiti. That was a policy under the Lindsay administration to give people spray paint to express their rage. Yeah. Now that's it comes from ventilationist theory and sociology. We study this that encouraging people to act out their rage would be good for them. Well, now we know that's not good. But mm -hmm. it's also under conflict theory that you encourage conflict, express your rage. And so Lindsay thought that allowing people the palate of the subways to express their rage mm. would be a really good thing. And it's um so they they designed these um, <laughs> murals on subways that made them scary looking. I mean, mm. the subways were terrifying. It was just the stupidest idea, but it was the 70s, the way you yeah. have to look at it, you know, ventilationist theory. Yeah. You know, even that lasted into the 80s. My master's is in family counseling and ventilationist theory was still going strong. We were encouraged to help, well, this was the late 70s, encouraged to help couples fight. And so there was even this Nerf idea. I never did this, but help couples hit each other with Nerf bats, that that would help you get your rage out. Well, no, actually, they went from Nerf bats to worse. But so, ventilationist theory is a big mistake. Doesn't hmm, work. Interesting. Not a good idea. Because this is a top uh, podcast about that relates to religion. Um, what stereotype, you know, stereotypes I grew up with, I think, and have heard from others about New York from religious people around the country is that this city is godless, uh, wicked, unchurched. Um, and I'm curious your take on whether that's a false or accurate stereotype and what is the religious life like in New York City? Well, I think it's one of the attractions for our students. Um, a lot of them have been involved in church plants here. Um, and to me, some of the most exciting work that's done like on podcasts like yours are people like eric metaxas i'm a huge fan of his podcast i don't know if you ever listened to it but he's yeah i've been on affiliated. it yeah oh have you i didn't realize that paul yeah he's amazing and his is inspired and and it's god is woven throughout I mean, it's really the basis of it like yours um so i think we're very very blessed in the city to have that our students at king's are always reminded of that whenever i teach this course because we look at the role of christianity from the earliest days even though those dutch settlers now i'm dutch and i can criticize a little bit the dutch um 
kind of took their time to build a church, 13 years when they first got here, because they were so busy establishing this colony. That doesn't mean they weren't prayerful. They, they prayed together as a community. They knew that God had brought them there, but they weren't like the Puritans. The Puritans were different. New York wasn't settled by Puritans. So we have a whole different culture. The Dutch are capitalists. They live to sell and sell and buy and sell again. That's yeah. what they're about. And that culture still shapes us today. But they were also very religious. And my father was, uh, I don't want to say he was a Calvinist, but he was in a way. Um, but he just saw the need for capitalism. And so they were from a very early Dutch family. My, my maiden name was Barnhart. So I, I come to this city <laughs> from yeah. having a long heritage. He grew up in, in New York City, then upstate for a while. They had a farm. He were... I mean, they sold corn to Gristetti's in the old days. So I, I think that religion still plays an important role today. Um, yeah. Your testament to that, King's is. I mean, yeah. to be in the city like this, and I think we have to still appreciate that. Our students find these wonderful places to worship. I mean, Tim Keller's church has always been a good one for us. But right. when you look at through history, you look at like the Catholics, the Irish who came in great numbers had this champion in Archbishop Hughes, John Hughes, who built St. Patrick's Cathedral, the first St. Patrick's, um, old St. Patrick's. And they called him Dagger John. And they called him Dagger John for a reason because he defended his Catholic flock. And he signed his name with a crucifix, but everybody said it was a dagger because mm. it looked like a dagger. And I think he wanted it to. And, and they tried to burn his churches down. And he was like, oh, no, we're not going to be doing that. And he mobilized right. his troops. I, I wish our religious leaders would be a little bit more proactive. Mm -hmm. Some of them are. Um, but I wish they would be more politically proactive. I know the whole 501c things you know, for nonprofit status, we can't be. But I think they could say a little more. The churches are doing amazing things that really are not well known. Yeah, and I so think I, I agree with your thesis about innovation in New York City also being part of the religious sector. And uh, over time, it seems like there's always strong archbishops uh, and a lot of incredibly intelligent and visionary leaders. And I think uh, I, I saw some data this week that uh, I didn't realize New York and New Jersey are two of probably the most five uh, Catholic, um, I think like around 40% of people identify as Catholic in yeah. each of those states. Um, and New York's, you know, so there's just a lot of strong infrastructure ideas, heritage and institutions in, the, in Catholicism. And similarly, innovation within, you mentioned Tim Keller. And for those who don't know yeah. Tim Keller, uh, he's written best-selling books. His, he has theories and theses around cities and knew that they were important. So he left being a seminary professor, planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, which blossomed yeah. to not just many churches in New York, but it's planted churches all around the world. It's been a hotbed of sort of seed planting and, and, and intellectual uh, approach to Protestant faith. And um, people like him, and I could name others, and I'm sure you could too, that where it seems to the church and religious communities in New York uh, engage with all levels of people, including the elites um, and uh, intellectual class, as well as um, uh, immigrants who just arrived and are trying to make a go of it. 
uh, from the from the very you know start very bottom. Uh, so I think it's like you said, it's vibrant here and it's a great place to be, especially when you're young. And what would you tell a parent who uh, is trying to decide, should I send my kid to New York City to a college like the King's College, whether that's for a semester or for four years? What would you tell them? I would tell them they're safe with us <laughs> for sure. And they're safe in the city. They, they're not going to lose their faith. Where sometimes you go to a Berkeley or a UCLA and you are in danger of losing your faith because it's not primary. With us, it's woven. Like in my course, it's right from day one. It's woven into the earliest days of the city. Their first project is to visit some churches and write about their urban ministries and what they're doing for the city, in the city, how they're functioning. Um, so for us, Christianity is central. And so you don't have to worry about your children in the city the way a lot of people might think. I mean, I, I wrote a whole book about um, how Catholic, many Catholic colleges have lost their way. They've really lost their identity um, completely. And it's called status envy because I argued that in an attempt to be like the big guys, they kind of gave up their, their Catholic identity. That's not the danger in Kings. That's why one of the reasons I'm so attracted to Kings because the mission is always central. It's right up front on our syllabi. You know, it's in our minds all the time. Um, prayer is important. Yeah, to me, it's probably, it's the reason I'm at King's. I came to King's many years ago when Marvin Olasky was there and I knew it would be an exciting place. I had retired from my job out in San Diego. We had moved back here because my husband was working on the East Coast and mm -hmm. Marvin invited me and I've, Loved it ever since. Yeah, yeah. Well, you you noted um, uh, Catholic institutions having this sort of drift. I think it's true of Protestant institutions as well, and elite institutions in in in, in um, uh, you know the Ivy eight Ivy League schools. Many of them, if not all of them, had religious. Oh, uh, I know Dartmouth, many. Princeton. They all had religious darts. Yeah, and tie-ins or chapels on right. campus. Uh, connections. They to all, the a lot of them have chapels. Yeah. Still. So how is New York City, and my last question today, I think is how, how will New York City be relevant in the future for religious people uh, and religious institutions? And you already kind of, I think made a point of, you'd like to see a little more activity, political, you know, activity, policy thinking or something outside of the church. Uh, maybe you want to expand on that a bit, but what, um, what do you think religious people and communities should think about in, in, in terms of action or other things? Yeah, I think religious communities are, are very good at social justice issues and feeding the, the hungry and taking care of the poor. And what they're not as good at, I think, is trying to help shape policy. I wish they would, because that's where it's key. And that's why I think what we're training kings to be leaders in their cities. So we're training Christian leadership. And we have seen the fruits of that. You have, I'm sure, your students who go out and work in cities or work to help shape public policy and government. Um, I'd like to see more of that. I mean, Tom Wolf once wrote that one, one belongs to New York instantly. The newcomers who come, our students who are still unpacking, are already New Yorkers. He said that 
one belongs to the city, to, one is a New Yorker within five minutes. It doesn't take five years. You're a New Yorker. And that's the beauty of New York. I mean, my daughter lives in Boston and she said, they'll never accept me because Boston, you know, it's like a clothes shop. Yeah. You're not from Boston. She's from San Diego. You know, <laughs> that's even worse. She grew yeah. up in San Diego where I was working. The, she's always an outsider. New York, there's no outsiders. There really aren't. I mean, it's not that they all open arm, you know, love you right away, but nobody's going to shut the door if you're going to buy their goods. Mm. They might not love you, but they're, but they're happy to have you. So there's, there's new New Yorkers coming in every single day. I mean, I wish the, the tourists would come back and I wish that we'd have more European visitors and you know, foreign visitors, um, but that's down 90%, but that's because of COVID. Once that's done, and it will be done, a lot of doctors are saying that we're, we're getting close to being done, even if there's no vaccine, the, the virus will have run its course. Mm. Um, we'll be back and they'll all be new New Yorkers. Mm. Well, Anne, I, I want to thank you for being with us again to talk about New York City in this odd year of 2020. And I do hope your predictions and insights um, hold true about the, the bright future for, this, for our city. Listeners, you've been listening to Religion Unplugged, a podcast of the award-winning nonprofit online magazine by the same name. And if you like what you're hearing, please sign up for our emails at religionunplugged.com. You can follow us on Twitter at, at religionmag or on Instagram at religionunplugged.